if you're new here, or you weren't here the last couple weeks at least, um, we're doing a mini-series on the new heavens and the new earth, which is to say we're looking at Revelation chapters 21 and 22. These are the last two chapters of the Bible. And um, people are handing out these books. If you don't have one, this would be a really handy thing for you to keep, to have, bring it back. I've printed and printed and printed like an infinite number of these, and we keep running out of them. So some of you might be getting more than one. But if you don't have one, I'd really love you to get one. We'll, we'll make more. It's okay. But we'll just, we may run out again. Um, what we're, what the th- one of the things that I want, want you guys to see as we look at Revelation uh, is that this is a book entirely dependent on the Old Testament. Everything that, that uh, John, who is the author of Revelation, says he's drawing from the Old Testament, almost, almost without exception, at least 85% of the verses in the, in the book of Revelation are Old Testament quotes and allusions. And we're looking at this really beautiful, rich uh, you know, passage or place, the last two chapters of the Bible. Why, in fact, why, remind me, why are we doing this? Why do we need to understand this image from the new heavens and the new earth or about the new heavens and the new earth? Hope. Hope, right? You need hope, right? Your life, you need two things. You need two kind of anchors in your life. You need gratitude for what has happened in the past. You need hope for things in the future. But hope is more important. Hope will draw you on with far greater effectiveness then gratitude will propel you forward, right? We need both, but really the value of gratitude is gratitude gives us hope. The fact that you have been good to me in the past gives me the courage to believe that you will be good to me in the future. And so it's with that kind of understanding of our own needs that we're looking at Revelation 21. I'm curious from last, we didn't do this last week, but it was like the previous two, two weeks. Um, any fragments or whole thoughts even that you can remember? Are you can look at your book? Anything that, was, that struck you here in these early moments of Revelation 21? Lesson or something, some Old Testament connection here. And by the way, the book works is that it's just Old Testament. I mean, it's, it's Revelation across the top and then tons and tons of OT allusions down below. But any kind of review thoughts, Bob? So often you think of the connection of Daniel, but Isaiah was just overwhelming, like, wow. Absolutely. Yeah, so John loves Isaiah, so all of Isaiah, but really in particular the last, from chapter 40 to the end, the 66 chapters in Isaiah, chapter 40 to 66, is a rich minefield here that, that he, not minefield, that's the wrong language, he's mining Isaiah, there's no bombs, um, he's mining Isaiah, and it's a, re- it's a really important thing to understand. And so kind of what I hope this thing might do is might, that your interest in studying the very end of the Bible might motivate you to go back and read some of the earlier stuff in the Bible that he's, that he's drawing from. So good. Any other thoughts that have stuck with you as we're trying to make sense of the new heavens and the new earth? It's all about unity. All about unity. Okay, tell us what you mean by that, Lily. Um, all things from heaven and earth will be unified in Christ in the end as the wedding feast. We will know what it really means to be excellent. Yes, and so what God is doing is he's, he's bringing things together. He's bringing communities together, people together, and he's con- con- connecting us to him, right? That we will finally be, he will be our God, and we will be his people. And there's a sense of whatever isolation or loneliness or unrequited love that has marked the human existence, it's going to end. That heaven is a world of love, that we exist in community and richness and relationship. Excellent, good. One or two other just randos that stuck with you? Anything else? Talked a little bit about the fact that like it's happening here. Like whatever image you have in your like typical Christian experience that we die and go to heaven someplace else. 
But that's true, but just for a moment. The good stuff is when Jesus comes back, he's going to raise us from the dead, and we're going to be here with him. Everything that John is borrowing from Isaiah and other places is really about this planet. This is the world that he made and loves, and this is where all the good stuff's going to happen. All the bad stuff's going to blow away. Okay, good enough. Um, Let's see. One of the things we're going to be trying to do, by the way, is, is making sense of the images that exist in Revelation, right? We want to get our heads around, like, how does it work? Like, how do we read and interpret this book that is uh, difficult to understand, right? It's complicated. Everybody knows it's complicated. And as we go, I'm going to be making a number of assertions about um, this is what it means. This is what this means. This is how you should understand it. Um, and I'm not the only person who has ever made assertions about what the book of Revelation means. But here's why you should believe me, okay? Here's, here's a couple things. If you're like, well, how do you know that that's what it means, okay? A couple things. Number one, I don't always know, all right? So this is a mysterious book. And I, like, I do not want to give you the impression that it's like this whole thing is just right here in my pocket. I just got it all. I own it all. That's not remotely true. It is a complicated book. And we, we want to ad- address it with a fair bit of humility. But there are some rules, there are some observations we can make, which I really do think can, can raise our confidence from like blithering idiocy and I have no idea what anything is to like, you know, I, gotta, I think this is a reasonable, we can make a reasonable case that this is really what's going on here, okay? So I want to suggest a couple of things to you about it beyond the fact that I don't always know. Most important, you guys, is that the key, I mean, I've said this before, but I want to drill down on this. The key to understanding Revelation is the Old Testament. And there is a principle that I think we should embody and embrace here, that a text can never mean what it never meant. Okay? A text can never mean what it never meant. Sometimes there is an assumption that New Testament authors have the right to take an Old Testament passage and then twist it. And they're allowed to do that because they're writing Bible. That's false. Will you repeat that statement? Um, A text can never mean what it never meant. And what I mean by that is that New Testament authors do not have the right to take a meaning that was plain and clear in the Old Testament and then just corrupt it to their own ends and then, and then enshrine it in Scripture. They don't get to do that, okay? So if you want to understand what John means when he's using this imagery, you, the answer key is the Old Testament. You have to go back to the Old Testament. What did it mean? What, what was it there? So it's a little bit, it's, okay. Did anybody ever make a collage out of like magazine pages? okay. Right. Do you remember doing this? Like, has it been a long time? Was this like a high school thing? I don't know if it was like a high school thing or like an 80s thing. But like, how does a, how do you, how does a collage work? What do you do when you make a collage? Cut pieces up and put them together. Right, you cut pieces up, you squish them together, right? So you go through, usually it's a magazine, right? You're going to go through a magazine, you're going to cut out words or images or phrases and stuff, and then you glue them on a new sheet of paper, right? So I can remember my girlfriend in high school making, making a collage, right? And the way it works is you just go, you know, she'd go through like the magazine, and she would cut out a phrase, which when it was written, when the ad executive was designing this thing, they weren't thinking about me, Okay. They weren't thinking about this relationship. There was, I was not in their mind, right? And so the headline might say, like, I don't even, I'm making this up. So it says, like, you know, uh, Democrats racing against budget deadline, right? And then you cut out the word racing, (laughs) right? Because we went on a date to a race, and now the word racing shows up in the collage, 
right? But the way that it gets used in the collage is 100% divorced from the original meaning, right? Is this all making sense? Okay, that's not what John is doing. He's not just reaching in and finding some linguistic phrase to wrench from its context, to strip of its meaning, and then paste on a page. That's not what this is. So when it shows up here in Revelation, and you want to know what does it mean here, you can't do that apart from like, okay, I'm going to do the work. What did it mean in Ezekiel? What did it mean in Isaiah? That's really the first step, okay? That's that. Second thing, sometimes, not always, but sometimes John is explicit in giving us an interpretation. It's a little bit like Jesus. So Jesus often would tell parables, and you re- sometimes you listen to the story and you're like, I don't know what you're talking about, right? I don't understand what this story means. And sometimes the disciples were like, okay, I don't get it. Uh, what is it? And so he would pull them aside. Matthew 13 is one place where he does it. He tells the parable of the sower that sows four, you know, seed goes into four different kinds of soil. And there's rocky seed and the stone on the, on the path and the birds come and eat it up and all this. And then they're just like blank faced. And so he's like, all right, here's what it means. And he walks them through it, Right? Sometimes, not often, but sometimes John will do that in Revelation. And when he does, he always uses the same formula. It's very simple. He says, X is Y. And it is always, never not, it is always, here's the metaphorical image, and here's what it means. X is the metaphor, Y is the explanation. So he'll say, you know, X is Y, and he'll, he'll, he'll unpack it for us. When that happens, just slow down, pay attention, because he's given you a gimme. Like, he's, you don't have to wonder anymore. Like, this is the answer. He's, he's telling you explicitly. I'll share an example of this. It's not within our, our section we're looking at, but it, it suits our purposes here. So go to, um, I'll give you one, Revelation 12, 9. So did you know that one of the characters in Revelation is a dragon? Okay. Well, this one may not be that opaque to you, but do you know who the dragon is? It is the devil. And here, we, we, we don't have to guess. Look at it. Revelation 12, 9. The great dragon was hurled down. X. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. So when you see the dragon, you know that it's the devil. That's just, he's like, this is what I'm telling you, okay? He does the same thing. Take a look. In Revelation 17, he walks through this whole thing. Revelation 17 is actually a little bit helpful because it's a counterpoint to our passage here. In Revelation 17, it says, uh, we'll, start, we'll start in verse 1. We won't read it all. We'll kind of skip through. But 17.1, one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came to me and said, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters with her kings of the earth committing adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. To which you might think, what? Like, what is that, okay? And then not only does he say that I will show you, then he does show you, and it gets even worse, okay? It gets even more like, what are you saying, okay? So then he shows you. Then the angel, verse 3, carried me away into the spirit, into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. And this title was written on her forehead. Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of those who bore the testimony to Jesus. Okay, again, like, so what? And John, John was like, what? 
When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. And the angel said to me, why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery. Thank you. Okay? So what does it mean? What is, this is this beast. It's got heads and this is woman. And what is it all? And you could. We, and we don't. You may not. A, you might just not have any idea what it means. Or B, you could start making stuff up. Or C, you could keep reading. Because this is one of the times. And he's like, hey, let's, let me break this one down for you. And so when we look at the ways that he breaks it down, it begins to give us clues for all the times that he doesn't break it down. This is, the, this is kind of the method that we might, might want to follow. Does that all make sense? Okay, so just really quick, if you just skim through as he explains, because this is not our, our total purpose, but we'll look at it. He says things like this, really helpful in 7.9. Um, he says, uh, the seven heads are the seven hills on which the woman sits. Okay, now that may not be a big clue to you, but do you know what the seven hills are? Rome. Rome. Okay, this is, this is not a biblical thing. This is just, a, I mean, if you lived in Rome, when you talk about the seven hills, you would know Rome as a city is actually configured on seven literal, it's literal hills. So X is Y. The, the seven horns are the seven hills. This image is, is, means this. And so he's pointing, so now we know, okay, we're talking about Rome. That's helpful. Okay, um, except it's a little bit weird because her name doesn't have Rome on it. She's got a different city on her name. What's the other city on her name? Babylon. Babylon. So which is it? Is it Babylon or is it, is it, is it Rome? We'll get to that. There are seven kings, five are fallen. What does this mean? Um, down in verse 12, the ten hens you, horns you saw are ten kings. Okay, X is Y. This thing is this. As he goes through, down to verse 15, the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are, X is Y. Why? Peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. Okay, so now we're beginning to start making sense. Verse 18. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the cities of the earth. Okay, so he gives all these little clues. And if you take it all and you package it all together, here's what we have. We have one city, Babylon. We have another city, Rome. Is it Rome or is it, is it Babylon or is it Rome? What's the answer? Yes, both. Okay, and now here's how do, how do we get there? Well, the waters upon which she sits is a multitude of places. It's, it's the peoples, the multitudes, the nations, the languages. So there is this thing, there is this pervasive thing from you know, beginning of time to the end of time of a power structure that arises and that seeks to dominate, that seeks to lead, that seeks to influence. And, and we're not, you don't see it in this passage. You'll see it in other passages more in chapter 18. That money is at the heart of the whole thing. The economic power of Babel. The economic power of Rome. The economic power, shall we say, of New York City, of London. We can add to the list. There is this thing that spans time and spans the globe of those that become wealthy and powerful use their wealth and their power to, to wicked ends. And that system, that thing is figured in this prostitute that sits on this beast. It's pervasive, it's broad, it's everywhere. It's particularly, fun one second bro, it's particularly in function in Rome because to the audience that hears this book, Rome is the epitome of that, right? And so they're concerned about that, but he's saying it didn't start here, it goes all the way back to Babel. This thing's been going on for a long, long time. And for us who are reading this book 2,000 years later, it's not like it didn't die when Rome fell. That's, that thing is... Is still ongoing, but it won't always be. Okay, make sense? Okay, so John. 
Also, too, she's supported by the devil. That's right. Very much so. And so, this, so there's this relationship where, like, this woman, she's supported by the devil. This woman that represents this city, which is not just a city, but these cities. And not just cities, but the economic power structure that, that oppresses people. That thing is in cahoots with the serpent, the, the dragon, the, the devil. And so there's, we begin to learn to read this properly to see how he unpacks things. Okay? So far so good? Got it? Is it too much? Too weird? You good? Okay. So now what I want to do, really, what it, that was all background. What we want to do is take a look at this new section uh, and try to understand what is John drawing from here when he, when he jumps into this. So let me read this to you. Revelation 21. We'll start at verse 9. And you guys are welcome to skip down, right? And just look on the bottom and, and uh, be, you'll begin to see this, what he's using. But again, he's not using it like a collage. The things, the sources that he's quoting, he's not just extracting words, he's extracting meaning. It means now what it meant then, okay? So, Revelation 21, 9 says, uh, let's see, will I read this whole thing? Yeah, I'll just read this chunk. So, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And let's actually pause right there. Um, can you think of a contrast point to this bride, this wife of the lamb, based on what we've already been talking about? It's us, isn't it? Church. Okay, so it is the church in contrast to what? Prostitute. Right. So you should see this. When we're talking about a prostitute, and then in the next section we're talking about a bride beautifully prepared for her husband, you should think, oh, I get it. It's two women. Right? They're both, okay, we have this woman who is this, you know, this whore dressed in scarlet, and we have this bride dressed in white. And your, your mind is meant to be like, oh, 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 I get it. We're comparing systems. We're comparing ways of being. We're comparing there's this and there's that. So you begin to think, oh, I see. He's using these images, not just unrelated, but the, the prostitute and the bride, they should, they should exist as counterparts in your mind, okay? So, verse 10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high. And he showed me, what does he show him? A holy what? Does this contrast to anything in your mind? Because there's this city, right? So again, we've we've got a prostitute and we've got a bride. We've got this Rome, Babylon. Again, New York, London. And there's Jerusalem. So we're contrasting the bride and the, there's the, we're contrasting the women. We're contrasting the cities. So there's these counterpoints that he's establishing as we're kind of thinking through this, okay? And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And it's shown with the glory of God. This is depicted so very differently than Babel. We skipped over chapter 18. You should go back and read chapter 18 and into 19 about Babylon in contrast to this city whose brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the the 12 tribes of Israel. And there are three gates on the east and three on the north and three on the south, three on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. Okay? So this is our thing. What we want to try to do is figure out 
What does he mean? What is he doing? Okay. Now, Bob was right when he said in this first section, John loved Isaiah. If you just kind of skip down and look at your notes here, what, what book does he love now? Ezekiel. He's all over Ezekiel. So uh, we're going to do a little, we're actually, that might be about all we're going to do in Revelation today because we're really going to spend the rest of the time in Ezekiel. Okay. So do you guys know anything about Ezekiel? Anything at all? Just throw it on the table. What do we know? What is that? Dem bones, right? His famous, so Ezekiel 37 is this famous, one of the most famous, maybe the most famous image in Ezekiel is about this valley of dry bones, a bunch of skeletons laying out, and they come together and sinews and meat and muscle forms and skin, and they breathe, and they're alive. This is a famous image here. Okay, what else? Ezekiel. Watchman. Watchman. Okay, good. So he is, the, uh, one of the kind of prophetic metaphors here is that he is watching, looking to see what God is going to do, both in judgment and in restoration. Okay, where does he fit in the timeline? He has a peculiar moment in like Israel's history that's important for us to know. Ezekiel was one of the captives carried off in yes. the first captivity. Yes. And he's in captivity when uh, the city is finally destroyed. Yes, that's exactly right. So, so Ezekiel is one of the captives. Here's what this means. The event, the central event of the Old Testament is the Babylonian captivity. Babylon, same people we're talking about, this owners of the city, they came in and they destroyed Israel in 586 B.C., come in and this, or, or Judah. They come in and they wipe out Judah. And all of the prophets were writing in anticipation of this moment. Clean up your act, clean up your act, judgment is coming, judgment is coming, and then Babylon comes and it's just bad, 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 bad. Most of the prophets are what we call pre-exilic. They're writing before the judgment comes. Some of them wrote in the middle of the exile, and that's our boy, Ezekiel. So Ezekiel, he's an exilic prophet. He's writing in the middle of this thing. He's a little bit pre, just a little bit. He got drug away early in the process, okay? But he, the bulk of his message is not a warning of judgment because it already happened. Rather, it is, a, it is an anticipation of God's future restoration. Yeah, that, that was terrible. We got our teeth kicked in, but it's not over yet. There's hope that, that the image of, and in Ezekiel 37, about the bones coming together, it's not a judgment picture. It's, you're already dead. You're a bunch of skeletons scattered on a field, but you'll live again, right? So his message is one of this. And in particular, Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48, you, should, you can go and read it. If you read Ezekiel, it only ends at 48. So it's the last eight chapters of Ezekiel. He has a very peculiar, very particular vision, and virtually Literally, virtually every word that John is drawing from in this section is from this movement in Ezekiel, okay? So you just heard us read Revelation. Let me just read you just the opening. You'll, you'll, it'll, it, should be, it should be instant for you. So go to Ezekiel 40, and if you haven't found that, Old Testament, just find your table. I don't know what page number it's on. Uh, but Ezekiel chapter 40, and as you're doing this, my, what I hope you might choose to do is use this thing as a guidebook to just kind of like lead you into the Old Testament, that you're going to go find some of these passages, and you go, ah, oh, I get it. I know where he's, what he's drawing from now, okay? Here's, you'll, you'll hear these phrases that might, be, might begin to pop for you. So Ezekiel 40, verse 1, says, in the 25th year of our exile, he's an exilic prophet, right? So what that means, is it's been 25 years. So imagine, imagine that Canada overruns the United States, like it's 2020, right? I mean, this would be the year, right? So they come in, and the friggin' moose-riding Mounties come in here, and they just slaughter us, 
and they drag us off to like Ottawa to live as slaves in their ice kingdom, okay? <laughs> and now it's 2045. For the last 25 years, we've been up there watching them play hockey and making fun of us, okay? 25 years of this, so then he writes, in the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, on the 14th year after the fall of the city, fall of the city when Jerusalem was blown up, on that very day the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he took me there. Check this out. In visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel. So he's not in Israel. He's having a vision. He's seeing something. In visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel, and he set me on a very high mountain. Does that ring a bell? How did that go? John had said, uh, where does it say it? Um, Come, I will show you the bride. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high. And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. So back in, back in Ezekiel, in visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel, set me on a very high mountain on whose south side were some buildings that looked like a city. Of course it looked like a city. That's what John sees as a city. So, I mean, it's absolutely, he's just ripping off Ezekiel. He's taking this whole thing. He took me there, and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze, and he was standing in the gateway with a linen cord with a measuring rod in his hand. Do you remember the measuring rod back in Revelation? This is this, okay? And the man said to me, Son of man, look with your eyes and hear with your ears and pay attention to everything I'm going to show you, for that is why you've been brought here, to tell the house of Israel everything you see, Okay? Is there any argument that this is the source material for Revelation 21? This is what he's going to. And so if we're going to know what John meant, we need to understand what Ezekiel saw. What was, that, what was the original vision about? Because that's going to that's tell us here. We see there's a city. There's a high mountain. There's this measuring rod. Um, it's a city. But what begins as a city, look at what it becomes from by verse 4. Take a look. So in verse 2... He set me on a very high mountain on whose south side were some buildings that looked like a city. What does the city become by verse 4? House of Israel. Uh, what, say it again? House of Israel. It is. Okay, and in particular, hang on, let me see. Let me, let me actually switch something here. Go to, this would be, I want, I want you to skim through. You're looking for a tag of a, another kind of location, a place that Ezekiel finds himself in. That's not a city. And tell me what you find. Temple. Temple. A temple. Okay? So he's in a city, but as it turns out, it's really a temple. What's a temple? What's the temple? Solomon. Okay. What is it? Yeah, super loud, Jason. Where the Israelites worship God. That's right, where they worship God. It's where God meets his people. So he goes and he sees a city. But then it's a dream, it's a vision, and things are shifty and weird. The city becomes, the entire city is the temple. It's the place where God meets with his people, okay? So as they're meeting, or as, he, as he's seeing this, and he's looking at this, um, you see temple in verse 7, you see temple in verse 9, and do you notice how the temple is decorated? Scroll through there. Look at verse 16. Oh, I know we're, there's so much to cover, I'm just going to kind of guide you through. In verse 16... What is the temple's decoration motif? Tropical. It's tropical. It is tropical. It's decorated to look like a garden. Anybody want to take a stab at which garden it's decorated to look like? Eden. <laughs> it is the Garden of Eden. Okay? So we're in a city. 
Mm, but it's actually a temple, and the temple looks an awful lot like a garden. Okay, why is that meaningful? Do you know why that's really that's that's important? Catch that, notice that. Why is it important that the temple is decorated to look like the Garden of Eden? The restoration of what God intended. That's right. So, we, so you're seeing that we're we're moving in the future. In some regard, not in all regards, but in some regards, back to what God intended in the very beginning. You got that, Nancy? You good? Okay. Now, if you go back and if you look at the way the original Hebrew temple was designed, it's full of palm trees. It's full of pomegranates. Pomegranates are like a curiously, like, look up, just do a word study on pomegranates of all things. There's like hundreds and hundreds of pomegranates in the, in the garden, which by the way, well, who knows? That might have been, there wasn't an apple probably. It might have been a pomegranate they ate. But nevertheless, the original garden was a temple. Like when, when God builds this thing, there's this gate, the gate on the east. That's why they're very particular when you build the temple. There's a gate on the east of the temple. The garden of Eden in which the world began where God met with his people, it was a temple. Adam was a priest in this temple, this place where God dwelt with his people. When they build a temple later on, they make it look like the garden to make this connection back. And then what Ezekiel sees... And then what John sees is not just a temple, but the whole thing, the whole city. It's huge. It's, it's like 1,200 miles across is a temple. And it's a temple that looks like a garden. So there's, he's stringing together this idea that like we be, the world, be, it's true that the world begins in a garden and it ends in a city. But in between the two, it is, all, it is a temple. Because, and, the, and, the, and the garden itself, I mean, I'm sorry, the city itself looks like a garden. And the garden was anticipating this temple, that the whole thing ultimately will come to pass, that there is a place that God will dwell with his people. And what Ezekiel sees is a temple that doesn't exist when he sees it. It doesn't exist today yet. He's anticipating something is going to happen, and it's going to be huge. It's going to be massive. It's going to be glorious. And God is going to be with his people. This temple is going to be the thing where all blessing flows out of it. And John looks at that and says, that is still going to happen. And I've seen it. It's happening. It will happen. When Jesus comes back, finally, the temple that Ezekiel saw will be, will be built. But it's not going to be this big. It's going to be like gigantic, hundreds of miles. And not just hundreds of miles wide. And not just hundreds of miles deep. But hundreds of miles tall. Any guess why the city is a cube. Why is it wide? As wide and long as it is tall. I'm only aware of one cube in the Old Testament. Yep. The Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is a cube. It's exactly as wide and long as it is tall. And what he's saying is that everything becomes this place of holiness. Everywhere is where we meet with him. We don't need to go somewhere to be with him because we're already there. And this is where he dwells. And by the way, one more thing. Here's your, here's your bonus points. Um, what's, our, what's our counterpoint city for the holy Jerusalem? What's our, like, anti-Jerusalem city? Babylon. Okay, and you're saying the both. It's, it's Rome or it's Babylon. And if we go to Babylon, what is Babylon's most impressive vertical feature? The tower. Okay, Babel is Babylon. If you didn't know that, Babel is Babylon. So they're like, you know, we're going to build a tower that reaches to the heavens. And God says, no, you're not. And he kicks it over. And then when he builds his city, that sucker goes like to the moon. It's just enormously, hugely tall. 
And now that thing that they had attempted to do but couldn't do and was wrong for them to do, he does. And that's why he didn't want them building a stairway to heaven. He's the stairway to heaven. And so when he builds his city, it's, it's all the way up. I don't know. I don't even know. What is a 1,200-mile tall city even? What could that even mean? I mean, how tall is the tallest thing in Manhattan? Like an eighth of a mile, a sixteenth of a mile or something? I mean, it's just, it's outrageous. But this is what he, and so now John is pulling all these things together to say, this is the place. It's going to happen. The garden becomes the city, but it doesn't lose its gardenness. It just matures and it develops, and it's the place that God will be. Left, right, front, back, all the way up. Okay, Bob. Sometimes I wonder, I mean, we, we know that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, his pride is what brought him down, and he's standing there looking at what he created. Yeah. God says, okay. But I always wondered, you know, seven wonders of the world, one of them was the Hanging Gardens. Hanging Gardens. The, he, he was like just the Tower of Babel was trying to do their own thing. Yes. Replicating what, you know, my own garden of Eden here. God said, no. That's absolutely true. So, the, so the, one of the famous, famous features of Babylon is the, the, it's the garden city. And he was right that God is building a great garden city. It's, as, it's, it's a fascinating kind of connection point. But he was doing it through wickedness and rebellion. Although I think Nebuchadnezzar is redeemed. I think, he, I think in Daniel he really is, his heart is changed and he is, I think he's converted to faith. But the, the corrupt, he, he does it in a corrupt way what God has always intended to do in, in reality. And that's the nature of evil, is it's always an imitation of the good, the, the real and the good. And that's all the stuff that he's seeing, okay? So far, so we're getting a sense of what's going on in Ezekiel. He sees this temple, he's gonna measure it. And if you read through it, it'll honestly be a little bit boring, okay? There's a lot of measurement. You're like, hey, it's this big, and it's this wide, and it's this long. He does that all over the place. But there are some really important passages. So I'll give you the highlights. Go to 43 now. We're still in Ezekiel. Go to 43. All we're doing, just to remind you, we want to understand Revelation because we, we want the hope that, we, that comes from this new world, this new heavens, new earth. And John is giving us a vision of it, but we don't know what the heck he's talking about. He's talking about, he's drawing his meaning from Ezekiel. So if we want to have the hope and know the meaning, we've got to go see what did Ezekiel mean. And here's, here's, a, here's an important movement in this. So verse 7, 43-7 of Ezekiel. He said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is the temple, P.S., okay? This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. The house of Israel will never again defile my holy name. Oh, and I should tell you this. When Babylon, I mean, yeah, when Babylon came in, they ruined the temple. They wrecked the temple. So it's, it'll be a little bit, not exactly, it'll be kind of like, you know, if the Canadians really, like, just go to town on the White House and it's just lying in shambles and every time we see a picture of it, or it's the two towers. That might be a better thing. So the two towers are, are lying in ashes and we miss the, two ta- we miss the twin towers and now Ezekiel is seeing a vision of new towers. It'll be rebuilt. He's seeing this is it. There's going to be a temple. And I'm going to be there with you. So verse 8. When they placed their threshold next to my threshold and their doorpost besides my doorpost with only a wall between me and them, they defiled my holy name by their detestable practices. So I destroyed them in my anger. Now let them put away from me their prostitution. Interesting. And the lifeless idols of their kings. And here's the punchline. And I will live among them forever that's the promise that's the gift is that this temple is a place that i will be this is where they will meet with me and john looks to it and says it'll be everywhere everywhere the world will become temple and he will be with us and we will be with him okay now so far so good okay one more thing i want you to get out of the ezekiel vision that you can then go back plug back into revelation Probably the high point in Ezekiel's vision 
is chapter 47. This is glorious. And this is really worth it. And John is going to make hay out of this. So go to Ezekiel 47, 1 to 12. Um, and I don't know, I don't know if this like has made it into like the top 50 Old Testament passages. You know, that you've you've heard of David and Goliath, you've heard of Gideon. I don't know if you know about the river. Um, but this is this is the climax of John's vision. So watch what he's saying. Think about what it means, okay? 47.1, the man brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and I saw water coming out from under the threshold of the temple toward the east, for the temple faced east. P.S., this is an allusion to the Garden of Eden, right? But there's this river, there's a river in the garden, and it flows out in a particular direction. So the water is coming down from under the south side of the temple, south of the altar, and then he brought me out through the north gate, and he led me around the outside to the outer gate facing east, and water was flowing from the south side. Okay? So there's a temple, this garden temple, and there's a river. It's really not a river. It's more like a creek, stream. It's flowing out from it. In verse 3, as the man went eastward with a measuring line in his hand, he measured off a 1,000 cubits. It's like uh, 1,500 meters, 1,500 uh, or no, like 800 meters. Um, and he led me through water that was ankle deep. It's this deep. It's just, a, it's just a creek. There's nothing to it, right? And he measured, uh, led me through water that was, uh, and then he measured off, verse 4, another thousand cubits. And he led me through water that was knee deep. So that's weird. Have you ever noticed that streams don't get deeper? If you have this little trickle, like you, 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 can't, you can't take a garden hose and run it down your street and then have it turn into like the Mississippi at the bottom, right? It's, 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 right? They, they break off and get smaller. They don't like somehow gain mass. This is a strange river. It's ankle deep and then it's knee deep. He measured off another thousand and he led me through water that was up to the waist. What is going on here? He measured off another thousand, but now it was a river that I could not cross because the water had risen and it was deep enough to swim in, a river that no one could cross. And he asked me, son of man, do you see this? So there's a, there's a city, there's a temple, this gardeny temple, and it's got a river flowing out of it, but it's a magic river. And the longer that it goes, the deeper and wider and massiver it gets. Nobody can swim through it. But this is not going to be a destructive river. That could be... That could be a thing that, like, you know, knocks down houses. Not this one. Watch what happens. He led me back to the bank of the river. Verse 7, when I arrived there, I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. And he said to me, the water flows toward the eastern region. It goes down into the Arabah where it enters the sea. And when it empties into the sea, the water there becomes fresh. This water goes and it takes waters that would be poisonous and deadly or at the very least salty and it purifies and it cleans and it makes dirty things good. And swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. It's a water of life. There will be large numbers of fish because the water flows there and it makes the salt water fresh so where the river flows, everything will live and fishermen will stand along the shore from En Gedi to En There'll be places for spreading nets, and the fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But the swamps and the marshes will not become fresh. They'll be left for salt. And fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both 
banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit, because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. And their fruit will serve for food, and their leaves for healing. What does it mean? What is the river? It is the Holy Spirit. And what did I say over here? What do you hear over? Living water. The living water. And this living water, by the way, biblically, when you see a river in the Bible, first guess, it's the Holy Spirit. Okay? Uh, in, in John 7, Jesus says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Out of him will stro- flow streams of living water. And then John says, By this he meant the Holy Spirit, who those who believed in him were later to receive. Same thing going on in John 4, same thing going on, I mean, throughout the Psalms, and certainly the same thing going on in the very end of Revelation. Just flip ahead in your book for just a little bit. This is not the only place that John draws from Ezekiel 40 to 48. Go to 22.1. Just past the midline here. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal. Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great city, great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. That's that's Ezekiel 47, right? What John is saying is that thing that Ezekiel saw, namely that there would be a place, there would be a temple, there would be a city where God would meet with his people, it will have a feature that transforms. And that feature is, it's the Spirit of God. And it grows and it gets bigger and the water gets deeper. And everywhere, it makes, it makes salt water clean, it makes the trees grow fruit, the very leaves, you're like, I don't know what you do with it, rub it on your skin, I don't know, eat a leaf, and the leaves are for healing, that what he's, what he's doing is all of the badness and all of the brokenness and all of the misery that permeates the world, it's all going away because he will dwell with his people and that will influence and spread and it'll be fantastically good. Yeah, Dan? Okay, maybe this is too big a question, but why are we going to need healing in heaven? Um, okay, interesting. So, when, when John uses it, he says, and we're, we will get a little bit more into this when we get to chapter 22. So I'll give you a, a quick answer now, we'll, we'll unpack it. When he says the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations, I, it's not clear if that's an eternal healing that we need to be, need to be continually healed, right? Because it, it may be that like it's the initial moment when, the, when this broken, corrupted world is being restored and renewed, all of the sad things go away. It's a little bit like asking, will we cry in heaven? And John says that he will wipe every tear from our eyes, which presumes the presence of tears to wipe. But maybe not tears forever. He wipes them away, they don't come back, he heals us, and we're not injured again. That might be true, but it might also be true, and I don't, I don't honestly know, it might also be true that in the world to come, there will be um, normal things will happen, and then we will heal, right? So it's, 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 and I don't know, this is, so pardon the heresy here. Can you go rock climbing in the world to come? And can you fall? And if you do, does everything turn into nerf? I don't, I don't know, right? I don't know. Or is it that we 
we go rock climbing and we fall and we get better. Like we, we heal. There's some, I don't, I don't know. So it's either, either it's the initial healing of the world from which there's no further injury or it's that we will live in a cycle of like we do things, we actual things in the world and uh, you slide tackle somebody and you get a, you know, you burn your leg but then you heal. I don't know. Could be the way. Jason, do you know? Well, I don't know. But <laughs> <laughs> is it possible that we'll almost like the looking to the glass darkly or seeing the world we used to live in and remember the pain for the tears? Um, yes. It, it, well, it, yes, for sure. I mean, I, I think that we will remember this world, albeit I think it will grow dimmer over time. In the same way, I can remember kindergarten-ish, sort of, kind of, but not very well, right? And so I would imagine like in a billion years, this might seem like it was a long time ago, right? And so some of those things may, that may come to pass. You know, that things, will, things will recede over time as they've tended to. Um, I don't know. But that's, that's my, be, my best sense. It's one of the, probably one of those two things, and I don't honestly, I just don't know which. Third possibility okay. is that it, it allows us to continually overcome mortality, and it is the tree of life that continually provides yeah. that Yes. So Dan is saying that maybe it continually provides us the ability to overcome mortality. And I do think that is the case. In the garden, think about this. In the garden, Adam and Eve weren't immortal per se. They weren't given immortality. They were given access to the tree of life. And then they were banned from the tree of life. And creatures such as we, when banned from the tree of life, die. Right? And so what, what happens here in Revelation 21 is you get the tree back. And because we get the tree... We get to live forever, which is one of the primary gifts that we have in Christ, is the gift of eternal life. Okay, we got to stop. We're long. So that's how that works. Okay, so go back. Read Ezekiel 40 to 48. Kind of mull on those things, and we'll see how it fits in, and we'll, and we'll do another section next week. Okay? All right, break. <laughs>